0: pilot pilot what's a pilot well the way they pick tv shows is they make one show that show's called a pilot and they show that one show to the people who pick shows and on the strength of that one show they decide if they want to make more shows some get chosen and become television
1: programs some don't become nothing she started one of the ones that became nothing hello keith good to chat with you again for another pilot episode discussion how are you doing i'm doing great it's the fall is here i love it uh i know we're as we're recording this it is uh the early fall although by the time we release it we will be right in the thick of it all so i just love fall i agree all fall (laughs) and i think that's kind of why we wanted to start releasing episodes around this time of year because traditionally Fall is the beginning of when a lot of shows return on that traditional broadcast television schedule. New seasons abound, although maybe not this year with the current writers and actors strike. But, yeah, I think this time of year still uh, brings in a sense of newness, new school year, holidays around the corner. And uh, I I always get a hankering for some new TV show watching uh, in the fall. I don't know about you.
0: I love I love discovering a new show. Like to mm-hmm. me to me uh like when we discovered Stranger Things and we'll get into that but that was magic. It, and the last time I felt that way since was The Bear. Like just oh, discovering see. a show it's like you it's just like you fell you got lost on the trail and you discover this like this hideout and 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 more pe- you're happy more people discover it. But you found
1: it first, in a way. Yeah, I think that's how I felt about when we discovered The Americans, because that's especially a show that you hear a lot of good things about, but a lot of people haven't seen it, unfortunately. But we did, and it's kind of cool to see other people catch on to that one. In terms of more recent shows, I think the only one I've really, really – fallen in love with that I would put in my favorites uh, of really like the last four or five years is probably severance on Apple TV. Oh yes. That, that one's a great one too. Uh, but there's always that hunt always looking for the next great show and uh, we'll see. I mean, again, it could be from discovering a show through this podcast ideally, but the show we're talking about today is one that we're very, very familiar with. It is the office. When we talk about 2,000 sitcoms, of course this one has to come up. It's This show is obviously one of the more Mount Rushmore shows of its time, and it definitely had a huge impact on the comedy landscape in television for many years afterwards. I, would,
0: I 100% agree. I would also say that it's had a giant impact on the working life. I think it's affected, mm-hmm. in maybe in some way, I think it's affected the – Average nine to five job in some way. Like, oh, OK. How, how would you? I think people kind of, A, they recognize the mundanity in maybe uh, that office type job. And they they would rather do four day weekends. They'd rather work from home. They'd rather not spend their lives dedicating themselves to a Dunder Mifflin type job. Yeah, they exactly. want to have fun. They want to have fun and work, but it's, it, it kind of affected its way into our work culture. And I mean that for the
1: better. Well, you know, nowadays in a post pandemic world, as it's called, you know, a lot of companies operate on a remote schedule or a hybrid schedule. So, I mean, for me personally, you know, with my job, I only have to go into my office twice a week, thankfully. And so, right. It's, I'm almost curious too how the office would be if you were to do like Dunder Mifflin on a hybrid schedule, or you know, if that company even were to still exist. Right? It probably wouldn't still exist by now, but you know it's it's funny to think because uh, you know for so many decades and decades, obviously everyone's going in every day of the week, and their work is such a huge part of their lives and. It's interesting. This show still does resonate. It's still one of the highest streaming shows, but I think it might also become now a relic of a uh, pre-pandemic time when to have an office job, or sorry, to have a corporate job, meant being in an office forty hours a week.
0: A relic of a show that's like ten to fifteen years old. I mean, right? It's not I, that old. No, but, but you are one hundred percent. It's it's. I can. I don't think Gen Zers can relate to. They can laugh at this show, but they can't really relate to the corporate life. A and majority so interesting, of them, I would actually,
1: say. Now that I think about it, this show will become less and less relevant as time goes on because, you know, some companies went back to a full time in the office schedule, but I think the vast majority of companies are remote or hybrid. And I think as time goes on, that's gonna be more and more popular. I, I don't really see the vast majority of industries and companies returning to that full-time work schedule. So yeah, hopefully the comedy will still resonate, but uh, I think if someone were to do an update of this show, you know, 10 years from now or so forth, it would have to be quite different. There'd be a lot more zoom or, you know, team meetings, what have you there, there'd be like a lot more, You'd, you couldn't do it exactly the same is what I'm saying. I do f- wonder if the creators of the show
0: go, it's like, man, like, they could have probably gotten a lot of stuff out of the pandemic, but also sure. this would have been a perfect way to, like, instead of the last seasons that we did get, like, kind of nearing a, this work-life kind of, you know, people are working from home, people are moving to work from home, like, the office life is kind of ending. That would have been a really good ending instead of the final two
1: seasons. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, I do want to discuss that at the end of our episode recap here. Uh, But, you know, first, this is an American adaptation of a British show, right? And there's like a good handful of shows across all different genres that were originated in the UK from, you know, reality shows. I think Love Island is one that really has taken off in recent years. To different kinds like of comedies and dramas. I mean, whose line is it anyway? Is one of my favorite shows is a variety show that started in the UK. I mean, what other examples can you think of of you know maybe good or bad American takes on a UK program?
0: Uh, House of Cards.
1: Oh yes, of House course, of yeah. Cards and
0: uh, I think Big Brother, right?
1: Big Brother actually. Oh, am I about to get was, spun? Oh my god! <laughs> originally, that was a danish show i think or a dutch show it was not originally in the uk but it was popular there first and then it got yeah they they basically brought it here and the first version of it didn't work and then they retold it to be more similar to survivor and then it took off uh but yeah that was one that originated in europe at the very least
0: that's my put in my back pocket for a trivia game type like i'm gonna be the one (laughs) that knows this like,
1: yeah, and you. Know, yeah, I never enough, knew that.
0: That's so fu- uh, funny.
1: I'll tell you this too. I don't know if we'll ever cover reality shows like Big Brother one day, but I know that when Big Brother first took off in the UK, it was extremely popular to the point where, and that was a show where the viewers got to decide who got kicked out of the house. More people voted in that show's voting polls than they did in the prime minister election. <laughs> so that just goes to show the popularity of that program at the time.
0: Uh, While we may not get into reality shows, I do hope we get into uh, British shows because I I love British shows and the British media ecosystem is so different because it's smaller and they rely on familiar faces like they like the panel shows and those like a character, an actor on the panel show can be in like two shows because they also rely
1: on shorter seasons Exactly. The original Office series in the UK only ran for like 14 episodes. It was like two series, right? They call their seasons series. Two series of six episodes each, and then I think two Christmas episodes, and that was your whole show. And that's very common over there. You don't get like 20 episodes a year of a given program. They really uh, don't really... Sorry, they do much shorter episode orders, and... I don't know. You're right. It's much smaller scale. I mean, way less people watch television as much, and it's. You're right. The whole ecosystem there is very different. So it'd be intriguing to see one day. I mean, I, there's a lot of British shows I think that we'd like to cover eventually. I know you're a big fan. A lot of our friends are a fan of, say, like the IT Crowd. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I oh I what can, there's an father there's Ted, an old show
0: Father Ted. I could go through the whole. Like I love yeah. uh, just British culture. In general, mm-hmm. um, but, same. Uh, I love British panel shows. Like I just, ho- I would love to be on a show like Taskmaster. But it's, uh, yeah, no. It, it's funny that you really get to see like the British version of The Office is like British culture to the max, as our American Office is very, you know, yeah, twenty-two episodes per season, very Americanized. Yep. But you know, they've also had, if I'm not mistaken, like a French Office, an Indian Office. Like this show is kind of the same way like reality shows is probably the most like spun off show. That's not reality. If
1: Well, it's also kind of funny too, when you get international versions of shows that you don't realize, because that happens also to programs that originate in America. You just package it out. And I think there's like, I don't know, maybe 10 international versions of everybody loves Raymond, for example. <laughs> All right. Like you, you, something can be popular in the U S and one of the strategies to really milk that property out is to do like, you know a version in brazil and so forth so um yeah there's maybe like a lot of what seems like parallel universe versions of our favorite shows out there in different languages and cultures everybody loves ramon (laughs) yeah it's that that's all they changed
0: that's what i love about tv like the stories you know the culture jokes have changed
1: but overall like the like the stories are universal yeah, you know, you kind of start with a similar framework, but then, of course, you know, humor is relative to each culture. And I don't know, like um, you could explore all different kinds of themes with the same setup, uh, depending on where you are, what kind of audience you're trying to appeal to. Um, so you have, you know, this being an adaptation of a British show. And I think actually the first season is where it's like most closely tied to those roots because, yeah, you know, the first season of The American Office is only six episodes, and it's when I think the humor is the driest, and then eventually, you know, the show over time maybe gets a little more silly or more absurd, add a little more sentiment, and, but in the beginning of the show, it really is peeled back, and as we'll see in the uh, history of the pilot, they didn't really change much to the pilot's script. They just sort of... You know, Americanized it, right? They probably just removed whatever British idioms wouldn't translate over. But for the most part, it really is the—it's a remake, actually, uh, of the first UK Office episode.
0: Yeah, Greg Daniels, who uh, really is the showrunner and uh, was in charge, and Greg Daniels, SNL, Simpsons, created King of the Hill. Like he is one of those like Harvard comedy writers who I really admire, and he. It, he thinks that it would have been a risk to do a completely new to not do an adaptation for the first
1: episode. Yeah, well, I think that like I said they they eventually venture off into something that feels a little more American in tone and in humor, but they start in something where okay, let's same starting point as the UK version, and then I think the real peak of the show for me are like seasons like two, three, and four, where it's almost like a hybrid of U S and UK humor, Uh, especially because, you know, you still had Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant as uh, producers on the show. And, you know, uh, like I said, at the end, it almost feels like a totally different world you're in in Like the eighth and ninth seasons.
0: I think Ricky and Steven were like, they, they're only credited as just story story by, because they wrote the pilot but I really think they were doing that. Like, Ricky Gervais went off and did extras and uh, uh, all yeah. his okay, other I think they were just happy to make money off of it. Sure, um, sure. But well, I, doesn't, I, um... I would say that if you want to be, like, a comedy writer, yeah. definitely season two, season three. It's, like, one of those, like, perfect episodes, perfect seasons of Simpsons. Just every episode knocks out, yeah. out of the park. Season four gets hit by the writer's strike of 2007. And there are some great – like, the dinner party, I think, is still – hold to a high regard fifth my favorite season, episode f- fifth season uh i'm not saying the cracks are there i would say the cracks really start to show in the sixth season yes but, um but it i you know has some great moments emotional moments like that fans have been waiting for season seven with uh, uh you know i steve carell leaves uh it that's you know we'll, we'll talk about the show overall but that season 2 and 3
1: i that's I, I laugh out fucking loud with those i know those are the episodes that i really go back to the most uh yeah. but you know let's start at the beginning again so a little history here on the office pilot the american version so this aired on march 4th 2005 on nbc to 11.2 million viewers not too bad for the time i would say and- it's
0: high it's Outside of the Super Bowl episode, it's highest episode. Like, it even beat the finale. Mm -hmm. I was
1: shocked. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because this was a mid-season replacement, obviously, because, you know, this premieres on March 4th. It has a very short uh, number of episodes for a first season. Uh, You know, kind of similar to my favorite show, Seinfeld. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. You know, it's kind of like a test run, these first run of episodes. I mean, what's interesting, too, is that the pilot was filmed way ahead of the rest of the first season episodes. Again, very similar to Seinfeld. That you know, makes sense. Produ- production took place for this first episode on February 18th, 2004, six months before the next episode would be produced. Uh, so, you know, when you watch this, you think, okay, this was released in 2005, uh, but it was filmed like uh, over a year before it was aired. So I, I find that very interesting. Uh, and then you know, you have um, here. You know, the a very interesting like team of of creators, writers, actors. You know, I think this shows a uh, creative team. It's it's very fluid, right? For example, you have three writers. You know, Paul Lieberstein, if I'm pronouncing that correct, Mindy Kaling, and B.J. Novak. You know, as we all know, they doubled as writers and as actors. Uh, and you know, even um, a lot of the supporting cast yeah, they were known for their work in improv. And I think there was like a lot of collaborative uh, work on the characters, on on the stories and creating just the world of this office. So, yeah, that's all like really, that has to be such a great environment to create comedy. And the results speak for themselves, like I said, especially in those first four or five seasons.
0: Kudos to getting this team together because I think as the office was ending, they released a lot of, uh, just like oh, look who auditioned, and yeah, yeah. Like did um Seth Rogen audition for S- Dwight? Seth Rogen, Patton Oswalt, like like all those quote unquote like weird character actors, uh, like uh J- Judah Friedlander. They all. It, I feel like uh, Dwight was like vague enough. Like he's a a goober, and we're just yeah, trying to I, um- set it. Like Catherine Hahn for Pam.
1: Paul Giamatti, they wanted Paul Giamatti for Michael. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that was the first name that was brought up, but he turned it down, He and that would have been a totally different character. Like, Paul Giamatti is a fantastic actor, but, you know, it just wouldn't have been the same.
0: All those actors that, that have tried out, like Eric Stone Street tried out for Kevin, and I'm kind of happy he didn't get it because he's not Kevin. He is perfect. He's Cam. He, he's Cam. Uh, Brian Bram... I I, I he, has a, uh, he, is a, <laughs> he he is a perfect Kevin. He is a perfect Kevin. Like uh, the the yeah. kudos to the casting and also just assembling the best team overall, the best directors, the best right, like the funniest people. I would love to have been a writer, uh, in the writers' room. Just how could we make this scene funnier? What could Michael say? What the, the? but they really
1: perfectly cast. We got the best in this universe. We got the best. I know. It almost seems like Steve Carell was destined for the role oh, of 100%. Scott. 100%. I mean, if you look at what he was in before, I mean, I think the first time I saw Steve Carell in anything was in Bruce Almighty. I think that might have been a breakout role for him. But wasn't he also uh, in The Daily Show with Jon Stewart as a correspondent yeah. or he was at least he was on the show. And, yeah, you know, he had like, I don't know, I guess had played characters that were within – the same sort of ballpark as a Michael Scott, at least in terms of the way he carries himself. And I, I don't know, like this, you know, Steve Carell has got on to do a lot of really, um, Steve Carell's gotten to do a lot of really compelling dramatic roles and a lot of other really funny parts. But yeah, this is a career defining role for him. And you know, I just think it makes sense because he's one of the funniest uh, leading characters of any show. Mm-hmm. Michael I don't think it's a bad thing to be Defined by one part when it's a part like Michael Scott
0: but yeah uh, like He's proven to us that he can do Drama like he's been nominated for An Oscar like I remember he played like In the movie the way way back It was like his first role outside Of the office or like when he Left and he Was an asshole like he played like The stepdad and he was an asshole I'm like you're an asshole Michael Scott
1: (laughs) Well, don't forget, too, uh, I think just a season or two into The Office, he is in Little Miss Sunshine, one of my favorite movies from the 2000s, and he is really great in that and also playing a very different kind of character. So, uh, you know, it it was really cool to see him take off, not just from the show, but also his career still taking off. Oh, and then, of course, I can't forget to mention uh, a year before The Office airs, I think maybe his... um, really big hit The 40-year-old virgin
0: I think they came I mean, out the same year or 2000 I, or was it 2004 or 2005
1: Uh let's go to Wikipedia I could have sworn it was 2004 but let me double check on that Yep you're right 2005 So yeah what a great year he has I mean th- Yeah uh, so yeah the way it goes First season of the office airs spring of 2005 uh then 40-year-old virgin comes out August 2005 And then season two of The Office, uh, just a month later in uh, September, or at least that fall. So, man, what a year to have! (laughs) To have like this this new show that I guess it wasn't a hit right away, but still, you're the lead of this network comedy, and then you're in this hit uh, comedic film. So, uh, man, this sometimes when it rains, it pours, right? My theory is that like,
0: okay, 11 million people watch the pilot and. It's, you know a lot of people like i like it was very mixed so a lot of people left the next episode diversity day uh was 6 million 5.95 right almost so,
1: half the audience and
0: then i would say 40-year-old virgin was definitely the comedy of the year if like it, uh, at least the summer and One they, of them. it rode the wave like it just like yep. rode the wave into season 2 and then yeah it not poured it tsunamied for the office
1: right exactly i mean i guess with the 40 year old version being such a big hit, that had to have also helped the show to some degree. Uh, but, you know, in addition to Steve Curl, and I, when, I, when I get a kick out of too for his audition, you know, he watched very little of the British version because he didn't really want to do Good a. Choice. Uh, yeah, he didn't want to do just a carbon copy of Ricky Gervais's David Brent character which is fair, but then on the flip side, you have Rain Wilson, who watched every episode of the British office to, to prepare, and he had also auditioned for the Michael Scott character, but of course, you know, we get him as Rain Wilson. Again, another career-defying character, but that's not a bad thing when it's a legendary TV character. And, and I can't think of too many characters like Dwight Schrute. I mean, he has to be one of the most unique TV characters.
0: And the, the funny thing is, Dwight is so different than gareth who is like the british dwight like they're great they're both goobers but dwight goober like he's just a a dweeb and rain wilson that's kind of funny
1: that he auditioned as michael scott like you never know (laughs) yeah right i mean that's the whole thing with the audition process is you know you come in for one part but it turns out you're really good for a different one yeah so dwight is based on the gareth keenan character i get a kick out of the like parallel names because then, uh, you know, the the British version, they obviously sound way more English. Like Jim Halpert is based on the character Tim Canterbury, <laughs> which, you know, obviously sounds way more English than a Jim Halpert. Uh And then, yeah, you had John Krasinski, who was really close to giving up acting, which is interesting. You know, he was really a, a, a struggling actor, right? He was, like, waiting and really hustling, and he gets this opportunity. And I, from what I understand, he really... Knew BJ Novak, so that might have helped him land an audition. Uh, but yeah, you know, him and um, Jenna Fisher, yeah, they went through multiple rounds of auditioning and they tried mixing and matching different uh, potential actors. And, you know, of course, they had the best chemistry between the two of them of all the actors who tried out. So, And that's yeah, what it's, it's about. That's a really smart way of doing it. And, you know, I, I think as an actor, it's a little stressful because you don't know right like you have to just try to connect with each actor and hope you just get the part but you really don't know if you can't help it if maybe the other actor has better chemistry with uh you know the other Pam or the other Jim yeah
0: how do you i want to, like outside of reading lines how do you do uh chemistry do you, do you like hello
1: like hello yeah, for an audition. <laughs> yeah for for an audition you don't do that first off but uh you know, for an audition too you don't have time really to workshop the scene with your auditioning partner there so it really has to be something in the moment it's either there or it's not which is actually I think a good litmus test uh and then like i said you had a lot of the supporting actors who were known for their improv like um you know Angela Kinsley or um you know Oscar um oh he's Martinez. great Martinez I don't want to accidentally say their character name. I want to say the actual actor's name because, you know, it's funny that they, um, you know, Angela Kinsey, I should say. Sorry. Uh, It's funny how some of the actors have the same first name as their, as their characters or even like just the whole name, right? I think Creed Bratton is just Creed Bratton, (laughs) which I love that. And I think the funniest casting of any of these uh, supporting roles was uh phyllis right she was just a casting associate i don't want to say just but you know she was not intending to audition for the show she uh was working on the staff and because uh the director of the pilot kent Quapis, who i believe is one of the recurring directors of the show uh he just liked how she was reading with the actors auditioning so he offered her a part and uh, the part um uh, was yeah, you know, the part of phyllis Lappin. she was is she is phyllis Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's she's so great on the show, too. And you really see her go through the ringer as you do all the other characters. But uh, this being a breakout role for her, too, I mean, we also know her as Sadness in Inside Out. So I think that's just a cool story there that just she just happened to be so good reading with the actors that she gets a part for herself. So, yeah, you never know who you're going to discover during the auditioning process.
0: I didn't know that. And I, you know, you always read about how uh, Jenna Fisher got cast and John Krasinski. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that about Phyllis. And that is right now my favorite casting just because like, yeah, you just you never know you like I like you could be like how many times have we heard? Like I was just about to quit acting and then you're that's when the phone call happens and you're given
1: the role mm-hmm. of a lifetime. It's just life is you go through the doors that open. I know. And but what's really funny too is um, I was watching more episodes of Arrested Development after we had you know discussed that in a previous episode, and I actually saw Phyllis as an extra in a Bluth Company board meeting. That's so, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's a quick appearance, and obviously, people who go on to know this show well, if you rediscover Arrested Development, then you'll recognize her. But that just is. An interesting practical solution to having to cast extras all the time is you know, just get some of the people from the staff to be in a board meeting or you know, one of these kind of scenes where people are only on screen for a couple minutes,
2: you'll change so, their um, life. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, you'll you never know if it turns into something else. I do uh, want,
0: oh, sorry, the one fact that I mm-hmm. did discover is that Ricky Gervais. Because he did have a hand in, I get in a little hand in the creation of the the show. He said that Michael should be good at his job.
1: Well, I be, oh because really it's hard like to get fired in Britain. Oh, okay, interesting. That's why the Dave Brent character is able to get away with so many things. It's much easier to get fired in the United States. Yeah, he said
0: David Brent would never be a manager.
1: Right, right. Well, you know what's so funny to me about the Michael Scott character is that yes, he's an amazing salesman. But he seems to not really be good at anything else, and so, I mean, maybe like you know, ice skating or something. But by what I always kind of thought about Michael Scott is like there is a SpongeBob episode where SpongeBob is tasked with being a really good waiter, and he's told to erase everything out of his mind except waiting and breathing, <laughs> fine dining and breathing. That's all he had to remember, and he literally, you see him like burn all the other knowledge out of his brain. I think that's kind of like what Michael Scott does to be a good paper salesman. It's almost as if he devotes so much of his brain power to being a salesman. He is incapable of anything else or knowing about anything else. And, um, you know, it's 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 so funny to watch throughout the series him just be so aloof about every single subject except sales.
0: I'm not saying he's a, he can be a jerk at times. I'm not saying he's he could be a big kid and annoying But in a lot of ways, because I know some people in the later years have just said, like, you know, we've read -read those articles like Michael Scott is awful. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's endearing. He like, I don't know. I find him
1: endearing. I agree. I mean, you know, he's he's needy and he's childish, but, you know, he always has good intentions. And even if he does maybe do something that's kind of off color or offensive, you know, uh, it's never out of malicious intentions it's it's always just out of this incessant need to be liked exactly and you know again that we all have that i think we all can relate to that desire to to be liked by whether it's coworkers or some group of people and i think that's why the character endures so much is you know no one really wants to identify with michael scott uh because of just you know how yeah, uh unbearable he could be at times. Uh yeah, as a boss, yeah, he's funny to, to watch and to laugh at, but uh I think at the same time there's there's certain flaws within him that we can all identify and relate to. Uh, you yeah, know, unwillingly of course. Uh not me though. Uh so <laughs> Uh, and then you know like you said the reviews for this pilot were pretty mixed i mean a lot of critics were calling it another failed americanization of an english show and i get it you know they, it was it. paling a comparison and you know it's like i said this was a remake of the first episode of the english office so of course it's gonna get a lot of comparisons there uh but you know for me at least i did laugh and we'll get at the end what we liked and didn't like And trying to isolate this one episode by itself yeah. uh, Because that's interesting to do And uh, you know, by its own merits you know, We'll see So here we go uh, I think now that the stage is set We can pretend it's March 4th, 2005 Keith, you can now take us to the pilot Flight
2: 527, runway 8 kilo here, cleared for takeoff
1: So, you know, we go right into the intro credits, that classic intro where we get the montage of Scranton and all the characters around the office and just all the classic office imagery, like the water cooler and someone making copies and all that generic sort of stuff. And that's, I guess, setting the tone here. You know, this is, you know, it's the office, but it's supposed to be like, almost a blank slate office i mean think about how dunder mifflin is a paper company it's like so generic you could really uh project any kind of business or work environment onto this particular group of characters and what they do for a living
0: you can tell by the quality of the show based on steve carell's hair because i yeah i hate it i hate it so much he looks like a used car salesman in, the, yeah. in these early episodes, especially in this in this episode, but then he develops, he gets back to the Steve Carell do by mm-hmm. like maybe the end of season one or definitely in season two. But I he, I just that's the first thing you kind of see with the cast, iconic theme song. I I don't I think everyone's kind of talked about like that is one of those if you hear yeah. if you hear that song you know you'll hum along to it. Well, but, I, I don't yeah. know if
1: he even has a name. It's just an original theme written for this show by Jay Ferguson, and they had shopped around a couple of different well-known songs that could have been the theme. I think uh, Mr. Blue Sky was one that the cast really oh. liked, but it was being used for another show that was airing at the time. So no, they might man. have gone with a you know well-known pop song or classic rock song, but, yeah, I think it's good that they get this original theme song. And, you know, Scranton – I feel like you know, it's it's within the Pennsylvania New York area, but I still think it has a similar sort of feel in terms of the music. That say like the Juke Carey show has like a very cozy and relatable Midwest-ish suburb, right? Like a bit of a Rust Belt feel to it.
0: Yeah, I think that's why I connect it. It is like I probably you know I see we see them in Jersey, like the, just like you're driving past that office fourth floor fluorescent yeah. lights like it it really captures that and scranton pennsylvania is like it's not pittsburgh it's not philadelphia it's scranton
1: yeah really really great location there and it's all it's so funny because scranton has almost become a bit of i don't want to say a tourist attraction but fans of the show will make note if they find themselves in scranton or driving past scranton and they take a, a picture of a highway sign that says that you know scranton pennsylvania and even though the show takes place there, it wasn't filmed there. I, I think the people who created the show and they wrote the show, they did the research into like, you know, what's around Scranton and certain locales to just keep consistency. But, uh, you know, it, it's not as if you can find the Dunder Mifflin Scranton branch by going there. It's <laughs> in know, California. It's, <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. It was filmed in LA, but uh, you know, it, people can just say like, Oh, look, you know, looking for Michael Scott over here. That's, so, yeah, they, that's nice. Yeah. And you know, with the hair, too, I, I I love that you mentioned that he looks like a used car salesman. It is a very cheesy salesman with the slick back hair. It yeah. almost looks like what uh maybe salesmen were styling their hair in the 80s, right? It's very yeah. outdated. So I think that's all very intentional. But you're right. I think it was almost a little too much. And so it's good that they dialed back a bit with, uh, with the hair there <laughs> starting in season two. So here we go. Now we get uh act 1 here the we're coming into the Dunder Mifflin office for the first time and uh we see Michael in his office talking with Jim asking about uh you know if he secured uh the library client Jim wasn't able to so Michael will show him how it's done calls him up on the phone and you know seems to have been able to secure a deal and but he does uh, have uh a faux pas where he mistakes person on the phone for a man but it's actually a woman (laughs) he attributes it to maybe that the woman's a smoker (laughs) um so you know little moments like that that's gonna be basically your your go-to type of humor these these cringy faux pas Um, and then while this scene is happening we get a talking head with michael where he's explaining how he's been at dunder mifflin for 12 years three years as a manager and he gives us a little tour of the office and, uh, you know, we start out with Pam. You know, he brings us to Pam's office at reception and he winds up making, you know, sort of an inappropriate comment about how she used to be much better looking. <laughs> and he does a sort of cat call. Pam does not appreciate that. He's a I, bit actually, too I do much. feel bad. He's a bit too I, much. <laughs> it is. It is. And I, I feel so bad for Pam in this first episode. I think, you know, throughout the series, Pam has to put up with so much and i feel like she's probably the most relatable character even more so than jim so yeah a lot of times it seems like she's maybe uh, the only normal human there surrounded by a bunch of very neurotic people uh, her boss at the top of the list
0: yeah and they're able to actually like i was kind of shocked I, I like you know you always hear about the pilot and you're always people usually kind of don't really want to watch it whenever they do rewatches of the office But it was better than I imagined, but it was so different from the rest of the series in that this actually feels like the average day of what would happen in, like, a Scranton business. Uh, Because all the rest of the episodes kind of deal with, like, you know, plot A, plot B, plot C. It's more sitcom, and, and I'm not complaining about that, but this just feels like there's kind of a narrative thread but it really is just like here are these people's lives here are their characters you and you really get who they are what they like their dynamics kind of straight away
1: which i was very impressed with yeah you know it's interesting that they establish a lot of key relationships in the office like you know the jim pam roy and we'll get to all that but there's also not a lot going on plot wise either right it seems like they're establishing a lot but they're not yeah. you know but it's all done in this very uh peeled back and dry tone which you know is not everyone's cup of tea it, at least you know the united states it definitely is a type of style of humor that resonates more with british audiences it, it's very british
0: like <laughs> yeah it's
1: very british <laughs> yeah i mean you know if you say dry humor i think you know uh, a lot of english content comes to mind uh so yeah, know, another talking head, we get Michael here who claims to uh, be considered the best boss, right? He he thinks highly of himself. He thinks everyone really likes him, even though you know, he's he's a bit delusional there, of course. And uh, I like this joke here. You know, he shows this mug that he has. that says, uh, you know, the best boss, world's best boss. And, uh, you know, then he says, you know, I bought this myself from Spencer's. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's why I, I think this is like a really great uh, – Talking head here because it shows how aloof Michael is. And he doesn't realize how he's undercutting himself, right? Because it's like, oh, like someone bought him that mug. No, I bought it. He's so proud that he bought himself a world's best boss mug. (laughs) That, like, you know, it's not an award. It's not what anyone else feels about him. It's just how he feels about himself. I hate Uh, to
0: say it, but and I uh Michael does seem like the kind of guy, and I can't tell you through nine seasons if they made this joke or not, that he would the kind of guy that would pay you to hang out with him. Mm, yeah. Like yeah. It well, just,
1: he has that like vibe to it. Well, he definitely gets in that realm throughout the show. Like in the dinner party, he basically forces Jim's hand <laughs> to attend his dinner party. You know, like he, he, he tricks comes him. up with, he comes up with this elaborate ruse just so Jim will admit that he has no plans and has no excuse to not go to his party. So yeah, he does things, that are just short of bribing someone to spend time with him, uh yeah, you know, and then we get Jim here talking about uh you know his job as a paper salesman, he's obviously very unenthusiastic about his his work, and he's you, know, you can tell he's very detached, very cynical, and yeah, this is like interesting too, because Jim eventually does care about his work much later on. And I think that's also where it starts to fall off for me. You know, I I get that the characters have to evolve over time, especially when you have nine seasons of a show. But, uh, you know, when Jim really starts to care, that I think coincides with me starting to, you know, fall off a bit with the show.
0: That's interesting because, yeah, with the, well, they decided to make them like co-managers which, right. Like, that whole plot line. And yeah, OK, Jim's getting older. He wants, you know, he wants to be taken a little bit more seriously, not only in the office, but outside of office. So, yeah, like, you know, as more responsibility and leadership takes on and, you well, know, you just, also Thunder Mifflin just keeps like they do see him as one, uh, one of the best. Yeah, he does feel kind of
1: pride in his work. Well, yeah, I think in that part of the series too, the beginning of season six, that's also when you know him and Pam are expecting a kid and they're you know planning a wedding, so it would make sense, I guess, too, for him to want to move up and earn more money. But again, at the same time, what makes the dynamic of the earlier seasons so funny for me is how Jim is you know more interested in pulling pranks on Dwight and his apathy, you know, his, his, yeah, his, yeah, his apathy. I think that all makes him sort of this this Bugs Bunny type character who always seems to like you know, one up the other characters and has like a really great sarcastic comment for everything.
0: It's funny that like in some aspects he is Bugs Bunny, but in other aspects he just, you know, a little too a little too late my friend. Like I would mm-hmm. say at least the first 3 seasons like yeah, and maybe when he's dealing with Dwight and Michael and then in Pam it's just so close but yet so far.
1: Well, yeah, the Pam storyline especially in like the first couple seasons is where that's, that's his weak spot. That's where he's yeah. most vulnerable because otherwise he doesn't really seem that vulnerable. Uh, and then, you know, Dwight too. It's, that's why I like this Looney Tunes person because Dwight is definitely like a daffy duck. I mean, you know, he's, he's definitely a character who has the joke on him a lot and he, he reacts in a similar kind of way. That's a good way uh, to put it. <laughs> so, you know, you have this scene here that I think really is the epitome of how maybe like lacking of a plot this pilot is. So Michael comes over to Jim and Dwight and he's referencing the WhatsApp commercial, which had to be from the late 90s, right? Like that beer commercial. And oh my gosh, if if I I was a kid back then when that commercial came out. But if I was an adult, like the second that commercial aired and caught on, I would have already been quite annoyed. So for someone to reference that eight years later, I think Jim says, you know, it's, it's still funny after all these years. Uh, I don't think it would be even funny for one day. Greg Daniels in the
0: script of the uk office just kind of crossed that out and just wrote we need to
1: like replace british joke with american joke <laughs> right right but i mean it's great to not did a reference because you know michael probably again he's been doing that for for so long I, that that would drive me insane if for seven years he was still making this what's up joke <laughs> just goes back to how annoying he is uh Oh, one thing, too, I wanted to mention when he was uh, Michael was talking to Pam. Yeah, he throws out a memo, right? Like, oh, oh yes. I have a memo for you. And, you know, Michael always wants to be funny. So he's like, oh, I have uh, I have a filing cabinet for this and it's the garbage. You know, he threw out that memo. So this comes back to bite him when Jan Levinson Gould arrives, the, the boss, the VP that Michael reports to. She's uh, she comes in to me with Michael who, yeah, he claims he's not intimidated by Jan. But, yeah, we'll see. That's not really the case. <laughs> Uh, you know, so they're they're meeting, and Jan is like, "Oh, have you had a chance to look over the agenda?" Michael's like, "What are you talking about? I never got an agenda." And Pam pretty much has to <laughs> call him out, like, "Uh, yeah, you did, and you threw it away." <laughs> he so always get he,
0: he always gets hoisted hoisted by his own petard. Like he really was kind yeah. of throwing. It's like no one else works
1: around here, and it's like he always yeah, gets I mean, it
0: right back at him.
1: He was gonna blame Pam for not getting that agenda, and she's like, "Uh, no, 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 <laughs> you, you did get it, and you tossed it." And uh, you see a lot of this throughout the show where, you know, he'll make a joke that really comes back to bite him in a really awkward moment, right? The cringe humor also is a bit acquired, right? Like I remember when I was younger, I really did not care for cringe humor. I, I had a really hard time watching something and uh, that, that relied on that sort of humor, you know, a character getting embarrassed or having a, an awkward moment. Uh, now I really enjoy that sort of humor. You know, I can I can rewatch these episodes a lot or watch a movie like, um, I don't know, like Meet the Parents, right? It has that kind of humor. I love uh, it. I but, revel in it. Right, right. I think I can tell. Or Kirby Enthusiasm, right? Like I love that show. That also relies a lot on the cringe humor. Uh, but I don't know, for some reason when I was younger, it was like nails on a chalkboard. I couldn't stand to see someone get embarrassed. You know, I would feel embarrassed for them. But, uh, you know, I think now uh, I really revel in that kind of humor.
2: All right, was there anything you wanted to add to the agenda? Mm, me no get
1: an agenda. I'm,
2: so, wait, I'm sorry? I didn't get any agenda. Well, I faxed one over to you this morning. Really? Because I didn't, uh, I didn't. Did we get a, a fax this morning? Uh, yeah, the one. Did, yeah. did, why, why is not it in my hand? Because a company runs on efficiency of communication, right? <laughs> um, so what's the problem, Pam? Why I didn't, uh, why didn't I get it? You put it in the garbage can that was a special filing cabinet.
0: There's several things about this scene that I found fascinating. Because, Such as, uh, well, they're talking about a Scranton-Stanford merger downsizing. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're basically paving the way for season three. Like they, talk, they yeah. bring up Josh, who uh, I, I
1: was surprised, like you know, because I don't, I haven't really watched this pilot episode too many times, and I, you know, I usually just rewatch, like I said, seasons two and three and four. And so I, I didn't realize that they set up that whole uh, Stanford subplot this far ahead of time. I, so that's, that's impressive. I mean, I know from a writing point of view, this show is very airtight about consistency. And so, you know, that, that shouldn't really surprise me. It just impresses me more that this is something that they mentioned so far ahead of time. And, you know, they really uh, it really turns into this uh, great, really strong arc later on.
0: Yeah, no, I think they always knew that they had the Stanford branch in their back pocket. But I, I was like, wait a minute, this is, this is season three. That's a like I, because yep. I always thought the pilot is so detached from the rest of the show, but it, yep. it isn't. It isn't. It, it has to start somewhere.
1: Well, even the very theme of downsizing really plays into really the whole series, right? Like from the very first episode here, Dunder Mifflin is a company that is not doing well. And so throughout the show, there's always that danger that, you know, the branch could be closed down or there could be layoffs. And, you know, we see that, right? Like that season two Halloween episode, Michael has to lay off somebody. And, uh, you know, eventually they are told at the beginning of season three that Scranton will be shut down only for that to, you know, last minute miracle they're, they're saved. So, uh, you know, that's, that's something that's, I, I like that's consistent throughout the show that not only are these people who are operating under the that mundanity of a paper selling business, but also the fact that, you know, at any time that this this could all come to an end. And I think it also just points out the absurdity of it all. Like, you know, you, you can work so hard and try to work your way up, but, you know, at any time, this company and everything you've been doing will have been for nothing.
0: That's how Pam feels. She's like, I, I'd be okay getting fired. <laughs>
1: Yeah, she doesn't mind uh, as we see later Jim even says he doesn't mind uh, Dwight welcomes it. <laughs> you know he at one point in, he has a talking head where he's saying you know he, he suggested downsizing when he was interviewed. <laughs> so um, you know that that's all that's all pretty funny to me that you know, three of our four leads here are either in favor of downsizing or indifferent to it., uh, but, yeah, but also during this meeting here where Jan is talking to Michael about possible downsizing, yeah, we get a call here from Todd Packer, who I I don't believe that this is the actor who would play him in person later on. Um,
0: no, it's did, uh, it's uh, David Koechner from SNL and uh, uh, Anchorman. Right uh, has famously played Todd Packer. You know, small yes. role, but just kind of you remember very memorable, like very ja- memorable, like Jazz from Fresh Prince. Very memorable. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, Greg Daniels asked a friend, Toby Huss. Now, you might not know Toby Huss, but you know Toby Huss. He, okay. Uh, he's Cotton. Cotton Hill. He has that voice. Like, he, he he's also been in, like, when we talk about Halt and Catch Fire on AMC, he's a oh, okay. very prolific, or yeah, he's done a lot, but his voice, he's Cotton Hill, he's uh, um, the neighbor, um, I'm forgetting their name, uh, the neighbor, the Asian neighbor from
1: King of the Hill. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's
0: um, uh, Kang. Kang, yes. Yeah. Like, he has okay. that nasally voice that I, – I thought it was David Keckner at first, and when I was doing research, I was like, oh, yeah. No, Greg just called in a fr- uh, favor.
1: I mean, it makes sense. I think this is a character they probably figured they'd eventually cast for yeah. someone in person, but – you know, since he only has uh, a few lines here on the phone, on speakerphone, yeah, in front of the boss, unaware, making very lewd comments about Jan, you know, carpets matching the drapes, and, yeah, it's, you know. And also, I mean, the Todd Packer character, yeah, the actor who plays him is really good in the part, but very insufferable. I mean, I, I guess that's, that's the character. He's supposed to be, like, this very offensive, mean, sexist, homophobic salesman. But uh, as effective as he is, like... You know, watching him is at a borderline like too effective. You know what I mean?
0: Well, we're Jim and Pam. Jim hates him,
1: right? Right, exactly. That's, it, it. Works because he's a believable character, and you know, the show through the lens of Pam and and Jim, right? They they condemn his behavior, uh, but he's he's more of like a plot device, really. He's like this caricature of like a outdated salesman from a bygone era. Thankfully, a bygone era. Uh, so, you know, uh, Jan asked Michael not to tell anybody about the downsizing, but you know, we see word spreading throughout the office. And uh, I have just a, a quote here that I wanted to keep because this is my my biggest laugh out loud moment of this pilot. You know, Michael has a talking head where he says you know, he doesn't think it's a good idea to tell people that there's going to be downsizing. And his analogy to this is, quote, well, as a doctor, you would not tell a patient they had cancer. And I I love that so much. And I think this happens a few times throughout the show where Michael in a talking head will come up with the absolute worst analogy to compare his situation to. And, And there's like one where, you know, he's trying to come up with the analogy for not shooting the messenger. And it's like, you know, when you crack down on drugs, you don't arrest the dealer. (laughs) <laughs> like there's like moments like that where it's the exact opposite right his his understanding of things is just so off or he, you can just tell he doesn't know what he's talking about so uh that that really made me laugh a lot uh, he's one beer short of a six-pack yeah yeah maybe a couple
2: oh, watch out for this guy dwight Schroot in the building this is ryan the new temp so nice to meet you. Introduce yourself. Be polite. Uh, Dwight Schrute, assistant regional manager. Assistant to the regional manager. So, uh, Dwight, tell them about the uh, the kung fu and the uh, car and everything. Uh, yeah, I got a '78 uh, 280Z. I bought it for twelve hundred. Fixed it up. So now worth three grand. That is his profit. Yeah. Uh, new engine, suspension. I got a respray. I got some photos. Mm, damn it, Jim! Okay. Uh, hold on, hold on. Judges in session. What is the problem here? He put my stuff in Jello again.
1: Uh, so the next scene here we have Ryan Howard, the temp arriving. And that's what's interesting too is you know, this is the only character to, to start off in the first episode. All the other characters have been working here, and here we get um, you know something a little different happening besides the threat of downsizing. We get the temp arriving. And uh, you know Michael wants to impress him with his sense of humor and oh, uh, makes a very interesting choice by doing an impersonation of uh, Hitler. Um, I, I that's you know very interesting first interaction for this Ryan Howard character, is his boss doing this very inappropriate impersonation, um, you know it's, we we get a lot of other moments where Michael's first impression with people isn't great, right? Like do you remember when he asked Karen if her father was the GI? <laughs> right, there's moments <laughs> like that. Uh, so oh yeah, when the yeah. whole
0: Stanford branch comes in. Right. Oh, god. He just, great he just television, but oh god.
1: One inappropriate comment after the other. Uh but here, yeah, we get this very inappropriate joke here. Brian obviously doesn't know what to make of it. Um yeah, but then uh yeah, you know, we get this other scene here of um you know, Dwight annoying Jim by pushing Jim's belongings off of his desk and yeah, you know, we get this kind of funny image here where Jim has these sharpened pencils he's using as a sort of barrier between his and Dwight's desk just to take things to the extreme and of course you know Dwight doesn't like that so we're starting to see you know a bit of that rivalry take shape seems a little innocent at first but it definitely goes to extreme lengths as we would see
0: this is where you can start to see like oh I know a Dwight I know a Jim I know a Kevin I know like like, it's kind of like I wrote Dwight like he's that guy Like he's that guy
1: I'm know. interested. I mean, I, I haven't really seen too much of the British version, but is the British equivalent Gareth Keenan? Is is he as I don't know extreme as Dwight or as you know much of um? He's a different know, just kind his, of weird. Right, right. He's weird, but you know he's uh, eccentric and very much like uh, an enforcer of rules. You know those those kind of things. Like, does he have the same sort of quirks as Dwight?
0: No, like uh, that's a good like. Dwight is like, I think he mentions like he's sheriff, he's a uh, assistant sheriff on the weekends. Like, Gareth did, like, he's kind of like, I obeyed, like, the rules are law for Dwight,
1: like, yeah. Oh, like, absolutely, like he's, he's, he's
0: big, big on rules, order, like, he, and you know, Gareth didn't have a beat farm. Uh,
1: oh, okay. Um, no, it's it's Gareth, but he, he did or did not, didn't. He oh, okay. I thought you said like, he did. Oh, I'm sorry, like, oh, sorry. that's uh, kind of a funny coincidence.
0: No, sorry. It's yeah. No, Dwight is very like, like their equivalents, obvious uh, in the show, but they're so different in their weirdness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, I mean, that's good. Obviously, you want to shape the character to in a different kind of way like gareth, and, is know, more,
0: gareth is more like intruding like oh are you on your like is it that time of the month like oh okay like no boundaries yeah no boundaries thing. yeah and dwight has asked that too but he's coming from a place of like i don't know what a woman looks like <laughs> you know like at least well he, he
1: has like these very uh bizarre yeah i don't want to say like conspiracy theories but like you know it's like um He's concerned if all the women's cycles are synced up because he doesn't want to exactly want to attract bears, yeah, something yeah. like that. He has these very uh, bizarre ways of thinking of the world, and yeah, well, he he's he's in, um, what's the word uncompromising yes. in his his viewpoints. So we get an act break, and when we come back, you know, Michael's looking over some phone messages, and he does a very long <laughs> and unfunny impression of the six million dollar man, and which yet it I made did, me laugh. It goes on long enough, right? It feels like a whole minute of him doing this sort of act of him, like slowly running and doing the sound effect. I didn't really know what the reference was until he said it. And maybe that's the point because the $6 million man is from what the seventies. Yeah. 60s, 70s. I think seventies. Yeah. I'm like aware of the $6 million man, but I, I wouldn't understand a reference if I was, if it wasn't explained to me, uh, And then, you know, Michael, yeah, he's joking about his salary, like, you know, I should be paid six million dollars. And after Pam sort of plays along, Michael kind of like gets a little serious. He's like, you know, Pam, if you have any issues with your compensation, you should bring it up with HR. Try to be professional, Pam. (laughs) And you know, I think this happens to Pam a bunch of times where like, you know, when she tries to get a little playful or involved in whatever Michael's doing, he does not volley back. (laughs) You know, he and he he wants to be really the only person who's telling the joke. Um, and then I don't know, another talking head here from Michael. He's listing his heroes—a very <laughs> interesting group of people: Bob Hope, Abraham Lincoln, Bono, and God, God. <laughs> and God as his hero, citing that their contributions to the world are incalculable. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I get a sense in this talking head that Michael is really like baking things up as he's going along. Right? He's he's just. Yeah, these aren't his actual heroes. He's just trying to think of something to say. Oh and yeah, and that—that's just another thing that happens with him all the time. Is just you know he, he has these talking heads or these moments in conversation. I think he even explains it in one episode where he goes, "You know, when I start a sentence, I don't always know where it's going, and I'll just keep talking, hoping that I get somewhere." <laughs> uh, that and that's so that's so key. I mean that that is the character, right?
0: Well, in the idea, of, in the concept of this world, they are a random mockument a random document, uh, Terry crew is filming this office. So yeah. he's kind of like, yeah, I'm a big, sh-. he thinks he's going to be a big shot after this. And he is yeah. trying to present himself in a way that no one else sees him.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, he, you could tell he takes a lot of pride talking to the camera and talking about his role within the office. And obviously, you know, he hypes himself up, but, yeah, you know, there's something sincere, too, about how he's just reveling in his attention because he's an attention seeker. So he's really trying to just talk about anything, really, to get more camera time. Uh, so, you know, Michael now calls a meeting to discuss the downsizing, which, you know, obviously that's not what Jan asked him to do. Uh, everyone's in the conference room. And we get like a an interesting group of people here in the conference room, a lot of faces that we would not see again. I said, who uh, are all
0: you people? Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. We see, obviously, some faces that would be consistent. Right? We see Phyllis. We see Stanley. But then we just see a few, like, random people. And from what I understand and what I looked up, some of the people we see in the scene were just actual production staff members, like accountants. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's just kind of like, um, you know, like, we need, to, we need to fill out this room. So, you know, who, who has time to just sit in for this scene?
0: I, that makes sense. I did note that this was the first time and only time I think that I've seen Stanley stand during a meeting because he's usually in that corner doing crossroads. Uh, exactly. Cross, he's uh, actually. Crosswords. He's ac-
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he's actually engaged in the yeah. meeting, which is, you know, that's something. We, we didn't know, know who Stanley for. was
0: at this point.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, at, at the same time, he does have some attitude with Michael. So there's some semblance of the character there. Yeah. yeah like, Michael, we need to know. We need to know what's going on. And he's not buying Michael's BS. He makes,
0: uh, Michael makes – oh, God. And like, I know the joke is he does, like, a black impression. Like, dang, take him. Oh, God. He
1: does, like, the voice, <laughs> right? And that's another thing about Michael is either with the Stanley character or um, Daryl, who we don't meet in this first episode. But, oh, know, Darryl, yeah, Daryl, the um, warehouse foreman. He makes these very uh, ill-advised attempts to connect with uh, these black characters. And, again, it just leads to these very cringy, awkward moments. Michael Uh,
0: also thinks he's like Richard – he's like a great stand-up comedian. Right. Oh, yeah. He's never done (laughs) stand-up.
1: He he thinks he's really hilarious, right? We see that throughout the show in the early episodes especially. He thinks everyone loves his jokes when, in actuality, not so much. Uh, and I, what I also like too, you know, Dwight insists on standing next to Michael and helping him it's make the first, this announcement. Uh, the, the first uh, assistant to
0: the regional manager, uh,
1: run-running joke. Right, they make that joke a couple times. Like assistant regional manager, assistant to the regional manager. You know, big difference there. Uh, yeah, and of course, as we know, that comes up a lot. Uh, Michael also calls on Pam, who is—he's you know, like, Pam, were you going to say something? Oh, <laughs> Clearly, yeah, <Detroit>. she <laughs> threw her on the was, bus. She was clearly not about to say anything. She looks around like, "Um, okay, and she reveals, oh, yeah, Jan mentioned that Scranton could get shut down. And so, yeah, that kind of sets the room into a frenzy, and Michael, again, like he kind of uh, gives her a hard time about it, you know, like uh, for doing the exact same thing he was doing, really. Uh, so let's see. So now, you know, Jim, we get a talking head with him where he's worried that all the things he knows about from his work, his job is just useless knowledge. You know, like all these things about how much manila folders cost, da-da-da. But he also happens to know Pam's favorite yogurt flavor. And this is where we start to explore what is clearly a bit of uh, a romantic connection here between Pam and Jim. Which, yeah, at first seems kind of innocent. Yeah, they seem, again, not only to be the only normal people, but we also saw them a little earlier in the episode. Just in a quick shot of them chatting at Pam's desk. They're just babies at this point, <laughs> like- I know I know it's it's so interesting to see the start of this dying season journey. uh so you know, after the meeting, we now get a scene of Michael showing Ryan around the office. He introduces uh, Ryan to Dwight, and shortly after Dwight, he looks and he goes into his desk and he discovers that his stapler has been placed in jello, and I think that's like a big moment for the show here. The first prank that we would see from jim uh against dwight and yeah you know, dwight obviously he's fed up because he says like oh he put my stuff in jello again <laughs> this is not the first time jim has done this i don't even know how he goes about doing this though like he it's it's a stapler in a like perfect jello mold it's, per- it's and a, a pretty good skill it's like, it's not as if you just made the jello and then you stuck the stapler in there. Like, you made jello around the stapler. <laughs> so, uh, that's, it's a prank, but it's definitely a prank that takes a lot of effort. And the fact that he's done it multiple times is kind of amazing, uh, but also kind of confusing. Like, yeah, you know, Jim takes these very far, these sort of pranks. Uh, and of course, you know, Dwight's, he's so angry, he demands discipline, but all that really happens is uh discipline
0: ooh kinky <laughs> uh
1: yeah like michael like making uh sexual jokes and then michael get... wants to
0: be the fun boss and this is fun and you have a very upset employee who's like who and on yeah. camera yeah you can't really have that so michael is trying to have the best of both worlds and he is right
1: not equipped to do that he's like feigning michael's like feigning the sort of like you know jim if someone doesn't like what you're doing you shouldn't do it and you can tell michael doesn't really mean any of that what anyway, you could also tell, too, this this becomes more obvious as the show goes on. You know, Michael sees Jim as this cool guy and Dwight as this annoying guy. So, clearly, Michael is going to side with Jim just because he's more interested in being Jim's friend yeah. than in being Dwight's friend. It's all high school. All, Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, Dwight obviously is infuriated because, again, like this is going against the rules, and he's making way more of an effort to be on Michael's good side than Jim, who obviously couldn't care less. Uh, but, you know, it just goes to show – The less you try, the more you win them over. (laughs) You know, that's why don't try too hard.
2: Do you mind if I go out for a drink with these guys? Uh,
1: No, no, come on.
2: Let's get out of here. Go home. Okay. Um, I'm going to be a few minutes, so it's only 20 past five. I still have to do my faxes. You know what? You should should come with us.
0: Because, you know, we're all going out and it could be a good chance for you to see what people are like outside of
2: the office you know i, I think it could be fun
1: no it sounds sounds good like, oh no totally. seriously we gotta get going yeah 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 uh so now yeah you know, we get this scene here this is towards the end of the episode now uh jim is talking to pam at her desk about going out for drinks with co-workers could be fun pam's kind of open to the idea and this is now where roy enters I and mean, we learned that roy is pam's fiance which is an interesting little twist like oh okay, like, what you thought was maybe a romance between these two is actually um, a love triangle. And Roy's very cold in his introduction, right? Like, when Pam mentions, like, oh, let's go out to drinks, Roy's like, no. (laughs) Not even, like, sounds fun. He's like, straight up, no, we are not. We're going home. And Jim even is like, hey, no, it could be fun. And, you know, Roy is not very friendly to Jim, not very uh, accommodating to, to Pam, and he just leaves, right? Like, it's yeah i think the character would not be as uh standoffish in some of the other episodes you know like he he seems to be like trusting of jim almost in the second season but in this in this first yeah you know, this first uh moment here he comes off as like very uh i don't know very cruel in a way that he's he's like telling pam like no we are not going out for drinks
0: yeah i'm not like a, i'm believe me i'm not a roy defender But yeah, Uh, who is in in the case of the documentary, I it's like, oh, man, it's like, yeah, the one time they bring a camera to work, you're just like, I, you know, you might have worked all day. You're tired and you come in and you see, you know, that guy likes your wife or your fiance, you know, like the like the vibe is there. But also, obviously, Roy, you know, I think they're engaged for three, five years
1: Pam mentions they've been engaged for three years, oh, God. and they plan on getting engaged in the spring, probably. So he, or sorry, takes- they plan on getting married. I should say they plan on getting married in the spring, probably.
0: He takes her for granted, and for whatever love that they like, they love each other, but they like the petals are kind of coming off of that flower. But yeah, he's not ha- like I. I kind of just took it as like yeah, I just caught you. I I I know you're flirting, dude. I don't want you to. I'm tired i want to go home but
1: in our eyes he is the
0: antagonist
1: in this relationship I oh yeah exactly i mean he's going to be the obstacle getting in the way of this romance that seems to make sense before you realize that there's a fiance in the mix yeah
0: like jim kind of puts it perfectly in the next scene where he's like will i be invited to the to the wedding and the silence
1: says everything
0: sometimes silence is an answer
1: yeah yeah exactly and this show does that a lot, where yeah. someone asks they ask a question and you don't need the answer spelled out for you. Um, and then um, yeah, we get this last scene here uh, in Michael's office, and Michael is trying to tell Ryan about how he's created a fun atmosphere, and so he demonstrates this by you know Pam coming into the office. You know Pam was just leaving a message. He's like, "No, come in, Pam. I, I was going to call you in anyway," and he pretends to fire her. For and she's like, why? Why am I being fired? He's like, oh, because you you've been stealing, and he's like, you've been stealing Post-it notes, and also because you've been violating company policy. We don't owe you any severance package. She's taking this joke really far, yeah, and to the point where Pam is in tears over her job, and finally Michael reveals, okay, he's just joking, and Pam of course calls him a jerk she yells at him and she she storms out and uh Ryan then you know he the camera pans back to him and of course he is just very uncomfortable throughout this whole sequence here so um you know not the first time Michael would pretend to fire somebody or you know sort of prank someone in a, a very inappropriate way like this uh but you know I I feel awful for Pam in this moment
0: I would argue that like this is more in line with like David Brent because this is from like, this is one of those, like, carbon copy of the uh, British office. And right. this is something that, yeah, I, maybe Ricky Gervais sells it better. And it's not that, I, I just didn't like the scene. It's it's so out of character from the Michael Scott that I, it, he, it's very bullying. It's not, chi- like, Michael Scott's childish, but it's like bullying to a girl on the verge of tears. And I, yeah it's a little too, like, it. this is where I'm like, this isn't The Office to me this is some other office and like that's i guess it's a criticism but um i yeah it just seems so out of
1: character from what i would know the show to be i agree it comes across as too mean yeah there's no playfulness i think a lot of the interactions that we'd enjoy between for example michael and pam when maybe michael's joking around and pam doesn't have the patience it kind of comes across more of pam maybe like it it's almost as if um an impatient mother dealing with uh a rowdy kid, right? And uh in this scene it just comes across as bullying. Yeah, like you said, yeah. bullying yeah. and there's there's no joy here. It's just unpleasant, right? Yeah. It's it's not funny. And so, you know, it's it, it just doesn't work.
0: Like I don't wanna give it like it would have saved it if like Michael if Jan called during that joke and said like you might be the one getting fired like if right, right. Michael got come up and right before like it's just like making her cry and con- like it, it i and I know it's a carbon copy. So that's where it's like uh like but I just it's if you were to tell me that this is the same guy who goes to goes to her art show,
1: I wouldn't believe you. Right, right, because you know, we we do understand that they have like a much better relationship for the majority of the show. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's unfortunate that this kind of, like, ends the episode in a very negative note, Weird right? note, it's, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a little weird. It's a little bit of a sour taste left in our mouths. There's but, although a little
0: there bit is, left to kind of save it, but, it, like, that's the chunk.
1: Yeah, that's, like, really the main ending note here. And then we got, like, one last quick scene where, you know, it's the end of the day. Jim and Pam are talking about, like, walking out together, but then they hear Roy's uh, car honking. So Pam just so leaves close. by herself. So yeah. close. Yeah. Exactly. And then so Jim, is last one in the office, and so he gets the camera's attention, and we see him leaving. Uh, another jello mold this time with Michael's best boss mug inside of it,
0: which is some kind of comeuppance, I guess. But sort it, of. It's a great way to end the show.
2: People I respect, heroes of mine, would be Bob Hope, um, Abraham Lincoln. Definitely, Bono, uh, and probably God would be the fourth one. And I, I just think all those people really uh, helped the world in so many ways that it's um it's really beyond words. It's really incalculable.
1: And so there you have it—the first episode of *The Office*. So, yeah, you know, this is um, the introduction. I would also say to the mockumentary style. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not sure if it had been done on American television before, at least on a major TV network like this. But this is maybe it. I mean, I, this is the show that paves the way for like you know, *Modern Family* and *Parks and Rec* and so many other shows that do this sort of format to varying degrees of success.
0: Like, uh, last week we talked about Arrested Development, and they played at it with, like, the cameras are moving. And it's almost there, but The Office takes it to the cameramen are characters in and of itself. And one of them would end up being one of the characters, but that's the only thing. But it's, like, yeah, they're they're talking heads. Like, this is, like, oh, these people could be real.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I always appreciate that The Office took the mockumentary style the most consistently, right? Because they would even discuss, like, what would the camera see? What wouldn't they see? Uh, you only go to their homes, really, uh, for very specific kinds of moments. You know, it's like, for example, as much as I like Modern Family, there are moments where you see, uh, like... I don't know. One of the couples waking up in bed together. I'm like, why would there be cameras there, just waiting for them to wake up? You know, like that, that whole kind of thing. This this show it makes the most sense. Well, yeah. That, that they're do, like the in terms of you know this is a mockumentary style. Characters are being interviewed. Cameras can only do so much. They really stick to that format the most faithfully. Even like in a Parks and Rec, which I love Parks and Rec, but there are just sometimes where it's like a talking head of. Tom Haverford describing all the weird nicknames he gives things, you know, like "chicky chicky parm parm." I'm like, why would the camera interview him for like twenty minutes about this kind of stuff? You know, uh, it, you could like pick it apart that way.
0: And it's, so, yeah, yeah, you
1: you can be looser with the format if you want. I'm just saying that you know, it it just won't make as much sense.
0: It's definitely the show that justifies its format the most because the series finale takes place like six months. The documentary is aired. We're kind of seeing the ramifications, like just how society, they're kind of famous. I think they aired on something like PBS or something. Yeah, I I, I imagine a network would be like, this is too good. It would captivate the nation. But it's, uh, yeah, it kind of justifies like, oh yeah, why we filmed you? And they're kind of talking about being filmed and all that while everyone else is kind of, and this, I, like, I love Parks. I love Modern Family. I, I love what we do in the shadows, but they haven't, they're, they can have their cake, but they're not eating it yet. You know what I mean? Like, it's.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, even, in, so, like, in The Office, for example, yeah, there are times where, like, Pam is trying to get the camera's attention. Like, oh, look over there. Like, an interaction between, like, Dwight and Angela or something, right? Yeah. Like, like you said, that the, the characters are, are very aware of that there's cameras and microphones, even like Jan at times, she's like, you know, Michael, are, are the cameras on? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, Mike, the mic, Michael they will have, have their lock.
0: mic, or like they, they have their mic or the camera uh, sneaks
1: in. And yeah, I love it. The last time we see Michael Scott, at least, you know, before he comes back for the finale, the last thing he does is takes off his mic. And so it's it's like, you know, um, it's a nice payoff there, again, keeping to the format. Now we, we were talking before about Uh, at the beginning of this discussion, the seasons that we like the most and, you know, falling off the show. And, yeah, it's too bad. You know, like, I I really only know seasons one through five very, very well. And we were discussing before, like, you know, with season six, that's where I start to fall off a bit. And, you know, there's another thing about those episodes that I start also to get annoyed with. And I feel like, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but, In some of those later seasons, I feel like the writers sort of like put um, Pam and Jim through the ringer in a way where like characters are really kind of dump on them for things that aren't their faults. Or they'll be put into like really um, difficult situations that are, again, not of their own doing. So something like, um, you know, like Scott's Tots is a legendary episode, right? But Dwight's conspiracy against Jim really makes no sense that people aren't catching on to him. I mean, you know, it it, I would be like, wait, this is very suspicious that you know like these results are coming up and everyone's seeming to buying it, you know, or there's just a lot of episodes like that where people are just very quick to 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 dump on them. And I I didn't really understand why the show would turn on those characters like that.
0: I think when a show has been on as long as they did. And the show, yeah, the cracks started to appear. And I say this with absolute love for the show. Like, this show was, means a lot to me. And I will even, like, there are some really good moments in season six and seven. And, like, if I watch the Jim and Pam scene where they get married, I I will shed a tear. Always works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, the I think when you're on that long and you're kind of aimless... Like there's no, especially like the, the sixth season. Like after the wedding, it really is just like Michael is banging. Uh, there's no, oh. there's no other plot really. There's really no like oh what's gonna happen. But it sets up, uh, like it, people things get to get a bit uh, cartoony.
1: Well, it's so funny too that we were comparing this earlier to Seinfeld in terms of okay pilots made and then almost a long time later you make the rest of the first season. You have a very short first season. Seasons eight and nine of both Seinfeld and of The Office have a key person leave the show. And again, the storylines get a little cartoony and it's a bit of a departure, right? So just, um, I don't know, there's some parallels there in terms of the histories of those shows. Like I would uh, never, I
0: if you, like if you wanted to watch The Office, like most people don't, I think when they're rewatching it uh, – like casually, they don't even bother with the first season. Although Diversity Day is when it started to kind of find its voice, but that's whatever. It's
1: well, I, I really like uh the the one where you know Dwight is trying to decide what the healthcare options are. Yeah. You know, like I think there's that some good moments funny. in season one.
0: Um, yeah, the baseball the basketball game. I think that's great. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's just uh, as I I would tell them to watch like season one, and then go to season seven. And then watch the finale skips like like Robert, California, God bless James Spader, but he does not fit in that show. And then yeah. when they gave it to, uh, you know, spoiler, but when they gave it to Andy Bernard and you were thinking like, this is actually a pretty good choice. And then he goes, I have to go film Hangover three. And I always sense that they the writers must have hated that because I've never seen like such character assassination. Like all that yeah. character build, like all that character build up. I really enjoyed the finale, but I always, I, I, the last time I rewatched The Office during the pandemic, I, I did the f- just about the full binge. I, I, once again, I didn't watch eight or nine, but I said after season three, how great would it have been if, like, the show ended? Uh, with Jim going like, you want to go out on a date? That would have been comparable to oh, the British show, but I'm so yeah. happy. We
1: got season four, season, season five. four like, is probably my favorite season. And, you know, I think a great finale would have been the season five subplot of the Michael Scott paper company. Uh, Cause that really seems to be like um, the most like highest stakes that the yes. show ever really gets but, to.
0: And that's silly, but it's funny. It like, it actually yeah. is funny, but it I, once Steve Carell left, and I think it's kind of universally, agreed upon, like, the
1: soul left of the show. Yeah, and, like, you know, you were mentioning Andy. I think what happens with a lot of shows, too, that run for a long time is the characters, especially, like, the supporting characters, sort of devolve into their most, like, fundamental mm-hmm. characteristics, and those get, like, heightened to an absurd degree. So, like, Kevin Kevin, be- Kevin becomes, like, really, really dumb, and Angela becomes, like, really, really uptight, and it, great. it becomes, like, a cartoon, Yeah, we call
0: that a flanderization, like, as the show continues on, uh, the characters start becoming caricatures of yep. themselves. Like jo- Joey or Kevin become, how can
1: you even function in this world, stupid? Right, right. It's it's like so over the top. And just to go back to this first episode again, you know, there's such a loose structure, right? It, there's not really like a set story. And then by the time you get to season two, you get sort of like more episode of the week, like you said, like sitcom kind of moments. I think the epitome of that is uh, the injury episode. Michael burns his foot on the George Foreman grill. I think that is like the epitome of what that show is doing in that season where you just have this like bubble episode that is so funny and just like another crazy day in the office that could only happen with this group of characters. And then in the third season, you get these more longer overarching storylines. Uh, and that all works for me. Email but... surveillance for me. When Michael is able oh, yeah. to read their emails and he finds
0: out he's not invited to Jim's party, but instead goes to an improv group yes. and it just finds out how bad, like it's that to me is a, is like another, like just great episode of television. Oh
1: man. I think everyone's actually, in sync.
0: Everyone, the writers, everyone, that show is just in sync at that time.
1: I think that episode, email surveillance might've been the first one I ever watched. Cause that also is very cringy when he's ruining that improv class. And it's, it's, <laughs> especially funny when you've done improv and you learn that he's basically doing all the absolute things you should not be doing in an improv class. Bang, bang,
0: bang. It's like, all right, give me your gun. Uh, He's like pulling out the fake guns or not. And uh. you you get,
1: he, he tells you why he's doing this. Like, you know, you you can't beat shooting somebody. So I always shoot people like his, his logic is so misguided in a way that is so cleverly written. And you get, essences of that in this first episode for sure like again that's why i highlighted the um the doctor not telling their patient they have cancer line because that to me really is where the character like the seat of the character is right this this very like misunderstanding mentality like he he, he's so aloof and his understandings of how the world works is really contrary to how it actually is uh in a way that's like surprising right it's it's you can write a dumb character, but you have to write them in a smart way. You have to be dumb in a in a clever or smart 100%. way. Hundred percent. One comparison, like this last that I'll make of writing a dumb character in a smart way. You know, a movie I recently rewatched for the first time in years was like Dumb and Dumber, and similar sort of thing. Dumb characters write in a smart way, but if you think about those characters and this character, Michael Scott, they're basically like adult version of kids. They have childlike mentalities and their needs are very much like a child, right? Like trying to get attention and, you know, trying – doing all these like very um, needy sort of things. You know, they, they pester people and, um, you know, it's that – I think that's what makes it work because there is an innocence within all of that that makes the character not totally dislikable. I mean I've talked to a few people who are like, oh, Michael Scott, like can't stand that character, so annoying. I'm like, no, nah, I mean he, he grows on you. And I think you actually made a point to me once where you would love to work for someone like Michael Scott because it would make your work so interesting.
0: I kind of want to
1: amend that because, like, I think watching it, it's like being, it's like
0: you you kind of want to – I always think it would be funny if I was ever at a wedding and someone said, I object, I love her. It's like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm dying at this. And then you're actually at that wedding going, like, I'm as awkward. This feels bad as anyone else. I think I'd be Ryan. Like – if, yeah. if a guy started like, hey, I'm funny and started doing the Hitler thing. I Oh, my gosh. In theory, that sounds like I'm laughing at him and it's funny, but I'm like, this is where I'm going to work? Oh,
1: God. I mean, it would be an interesting thing to tell people like, man, you will not believe the first day that I had. But uh, I'm
0: very happy that this show – the seeds of like what the show will be are definitely in this pilot. And I kind of shed out the Britishness and not that the Britishness is bad. It's good for the British version, but it just did not. I think the British aspects of this show is kind of why 6 million people kind of said, eh, I'm yeah. not going to watch it.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I think that, as we said, the show evolves in a way that becomes it's beautiful. It the best parts of the show, the best season of the show is when you get just the right mix of the British dry humor and that sort of wacky American humor, like just dress the right blend. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, that gets some of the funniest and best comedic moments of television history. Yeah. All right. So there we have it, the office, um, you know, a, a legendary show that we were all very excited to talk about. And clearly we went on to watch many, many times over and over again. It's worth noting. It's one of the highest and most consist- consistently streamed TV shows of all streaming.
0: I think it'll whether, be that way for a while. Like, I Whether think, it's like, on
1: Netflix or Peacock or, you know, if it ever moves anywhere else, it is a very reliable streamer just because I don't know, just it's like perfect for just putting on, uh, you know, several episodes a day.
0: I think each generation will discover it. I think it's that kind of funny. It goes – like kids might not know what an office is, but they'll, they'll – Michael Scott and everyone else is hilarious.
1: And he's a very memeified character too. Like, oh, yeah. Know, Pri- <laughs> Prison Mike is a very popular meme still. I still quote that. Yeah. You want to know why they call me like Prison Mike? All right, the Dementors. So, <laughs> like Harry Potter uh, okay we can talk about The Office all day but you know there's other workplace sitcoms that are just as funny and so next week we're going to be talking about the ultimate TV workplace sitcom which is 30 Rock very excited for that one as well so uh, Keith uh, this is always a fun time talking about these shows and we'll do it again next week so until then we'll see you at the next pilot Follow us on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, at Take Us to the Pilot. That's Take Us to the Pilot with the number 2.
2: Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day.